Welcome to the Paragraph Podcast. This is Jerry Pickney, and I am joined today by Danielle Honeycutt, who is ESL Director from Paragould School District. Danielle, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So, first time I met you, um, what was that? I mean, was it four years ago? Does that seem right? It does seem right. And so, I'd heard all these great things about you and, and just how you were really serving the international families in our community. And um, when I met you, I immediately realized why everyone sung your praises. And so, so glad that you came on um, today. And I would love to start with just hearing a little bit about your background, kind of where you came from. So I know you were not raised in Paragold. And so just tell me, yeah, a little bit about your story. Absolutely. Um, so I am originally from Kansas, from Topeka, Kansas. And um, I grew up and I'm an, I'm an only child. And my parents, my dad worked for the Kansas Department of Transportation, and my mom worked as a receptionist for a mental health facility. And um, I, I first became interested in the Spanish language when my mom had a friend that she worked with, and she came to our house. And I just remember being so enamored by this woman. And, um, and like, I loved her. And then she brought her husband over, and they had dinner with my family one time. And I just thought, I love how they interact with each other. Hmm. And then she got pregnant and she had a baby. And I mean, I felt like that baby was just a part of me as well. I loved how they, they I, I don't know, I just can't explain it, Jared. They just, the way that they interacted, I knew I wanted to be a part of that culture so bad. Hmm. And so I was probably in the fifth grade when that happened. Oh, wow. And um, so I took a Spanish class at my junior high. And I loved the language. And I loved my teacher, and so I thought, okay, this is something that I want that I want to continue with. Mm-hmm. So I go into high school, and I take some Spanish classes in high school, and um, it was a little bit different in high school. It became more of a social hour for me mm-hmm. because my friends were also in there, yeah, yeah. and um, it was a little less, I was a little less studious maybe yeah. than I should have been. Yeah. So my grades were kind of low in my Spanish class. I went to college. Um, I played tennis in college. Where did you go to college at? I went, it's Washburn University. It's a Division II school in Topeka. Okay. And so I went on a, on a college, on a tennis scholarship. Yeah, that's one of the things we share in common. Not that I'm good at tennis, but I like <laughs> playing it. It's a lifelong sport. Yeah. You can play it forever. Absolutely. I agree. And so you go there on scholarship. I did. Not thinking anything Spanish related at this point. No. Okay. I always thought I wanted to be a teacher. Okay. And my parents basically said, listen, we're helping to pay, you know, for some of your classes. The scholarship didn't quite cover it all. And they said, we're helping to pay for your classes. So you probably don't need to take Spanish because my grades had not been super great. (laughs) So I agreed to not take any Spanish classes. And that first year I didn't. And Jared, I missed it. I missed it so much. And I took um, a couple of classes to go into teaching and I didn't enjoy them Hmm. and I don't know why but I just didn't and so um, I didn't know what I was going to do and being a college athlete you have to declare a major by the time you're a junior and I couldn't I almost couldn't do it Hmm. Um, I decided I would go ahead and just declare teaching because I had to declare something Mm -hmm. and um, within a semester I had changed and I was uh, now a psychology major because I thought well, maybe that's something that I would like yeah. to do. I love to talk, so I thought yeah. maybe I would love to do that. Yeah. So at one point I was a psychology major. That might have lasted another semester. 
And then I took my first um, public relations class, my first mass media class. And I thought, this is it. This is what I'm supposed mm. to do. Yeah. And so I ended up majoring in mass media with an emphasis in public relations. And I thought, well, I'll get a minor in Spanish because that seemed like a great thing to do. To do. And then I got into it more and more, and I decided, why not double major? But that would involve me going to Costa Rica. I needed the, I needed the hours, and so I thought, I'm going to do a study abroad. Hmm. And so before my senior year of college, I went and I lived in Costa Rica. And, and I that lived, was when? What year? Oh, from? my gosh. So I graduated in December of 2000 from college. Okay. So that would have been summer of 2000. Okay. So I go down there, and at this point, I can write research papers in Spanish. I've taken the history of Spain in Spanish. I've taken all these upper-level Spanish classes. But I get to Costa Rica. I know nobody. I I go completely by myself. Um, And I get there, and I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? Mm -hmm. I mean, I could ask how to go, like, if I can go to the bathroom. But as far as having conversational Spanish, I really didn't have any. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I was I landed in a country. I didn't even know who I was going to be living with. I knew that there would be a man <laughs> that would pick me up at the airport and take me to my host family, and that's all I knew. <laughs> there will be a man there waiting for you at yes, the airport. Yes. Like, okay, sounds great. I know, and now I think, I'm like, what if my kid asked to do that someday? Am I going to say yes? And I mean, I would have to, right? Yeah, because yeah. I did it. Yeah. Were your parents supportive? They were. They really were. Um, like I said, you know, I was an only child. And um, I even lived at home during college. So, I mean, I had not ventured out. I didn't go away like to summer camps. I was a homebody. Oh, wow. Um, this is a huge move for you. It was huge, yes. And I mean, even looking back at it, I really still don't know how it all kind of transpired. I feel like I was just led to be there. Yeah. And I can't explain it. But sure enough, there was a man and he picked me up at the mm-hmm. airport. And he was super nice. And my flight got in. It had been delayed, of course, because why not? Mm-hmm. So I got in late at night. And um, we were driving down this highway. And he had the windows down. And I just stuck my arm out the window. And I just was convicted that everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, I'm like, everything's going to be great. Here I am. Um, I'm just going to make the absolute best of it that I can. And he dropped me off at my host family's house. And it was uh, a family that had just moved to Costa Rica from Colombia, hmm. South America. And so it was a mom, dad, and then their daughter, who was just a couple years younger than me. Just wonderful, wonderful people. Hmm. I mean, it, I couldn't have handpicked a better family. And so, of course, I get there and I use the one phrase that I know, which is, can I please go to the bathroom? <laughs> because I, that's what I knew how to yeah. say. And um, it was just, it was great. I spent six weeks that first time, and I lived in San Jose, in, um, which is a, it's a big city. I mean, it has a million people, and it's just super crowded, and that was a far cry. I mean, I came from Topeka, which is a pretty big city. It's about the size of Little Rock. Okay. You know, so it was bigger, um, much bigger than anything I had ever experienced. I had to walk to school, walk back. I took public transportation. I'd never done that. I mean, I hadn't taken a taxi anywhere. I hadn't taken a public bus. I know. I feel like I'd lived a very yeah, sheltered life. Yeah, you're like, life. I'm going to go do all this now in a place where I don't speak their language. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm going all out. Exactly. Exactly. And so there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of personal growth 
uh, during that time, most oh, definitely. Man. What was the hardest thing about all of that? Oh, the hardest thing. It was hard not to be able to express my emotions. I'm super emotional. I like to express myself. I like to talk about things. And when you're not able to, when I'm able to, when I think about that something in English and I can't get it out into, you know, a, a second mm-hmm. language into Spanish, mm-hmm. I mean, it just, that was the hardest part for me. And just, it's almost like the emotional side of it was, there was like a big disconnect. Like I would want mm-hmm. to say something and I would say it in Spanish and I'm like, oh, but I don't really feel that emotion like I would yeah. if I was saying it in English. Wow. Hearing you talk about that, I think there are a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, as far as the emotional aspect, like they're living in a in a world where they it feels like a foreign country as far as like in a relationship with their friends or even their spouse because they don't, we've not really been taught I mean, a lot of times we've been taught to stuff our emotions and we don't even really know how to express our emotions, even to someone who's like, you know, grows up right beside us in our neighborhood or whatever else speaks the same language. And so to hear you say that, I'm just reminded again of like how important it is to be able to express your emotions, like what you're feeling, you know, like there's more than just this cognitive awareness of like, as long as we can just stay factual, like everything's going to be okay. But yeah, like I would imagine that'd be a very lonely place. Yes. To be if you can't express your emotions and feelings, like no matter how hard you try. And That's especially right. as someone who like has grown up, like I'm a very emotional person, you know, and I like to express those. So you were there for how long? The first time I was there, it was six weeks. So that trip was six weeks. Okay. And, um, and I came back that summer and I knew I still had one semester to graduate. And um, I knew that that was not the last time that I would spend in that country um, or with that family. They quickly became very much like my own, and I knew that I would go back. I just, I had to. So, I went back, I graduated, and then um, January of 2001, I actually moved to Little Rock. And I moved to Little Rock to take um, a position as a tennis instructor for the Little Rock Racquet Club and the Little Rock Athletic Club. Hmm. How did you get that job? I don't know. It's really random, right? I don't know, Jared. I don't know. I had a friend and she had lived there and she was like, I think that you would really like Arkansas. And I had preconceived notions of Arkansas and I thought, there's no way. There's no (laughs) way. And then I saw a commercial on TV and I thought, that looks like a really cool place. And she goes, that's Arkansas. And I said, no, it's not. And I looked and it was, it was a promo for Arkansas. And I thought, okay, I will give it a shot. And so I came down, I visited her, and I came down, and I was like, this is not at all what I had envisioned. And so I thought, okay, I'll apply, and we'll see what happens, and by George, it happened to work out. So off I went. Wow. How long were you there? So I was there um, through July of 2003. Okay. So July of 2003, I moved back home, um, and this is... This is, it's one of my, it's probably the saddest part of my story, but it's also the part I think that really um, formed me. So July of 2003, I moved back home to Topeka. Um, I had gotten a job um, as an event coordinator for, it's called the Kansas Expo Center. And it's like an all-tell arena or, and I know that ages me when I say all-tell arena because it's not (laughs) anymore. Like the ASU Convocation Center, it's like that. And so I'd gotten that job, and um, I thought, well, that'll be a lot of fun. I'll enjoy it. I um, had been dating the same guy for five and a half years. We were college sweethearts, and um, we had broken up. 
that July when I moved home. And I thought, well, this is hard. Mm -hmm. And then um, in August, my dad was diagnosed. They found found a spot on his lung in August. Mm. That was August 14th. September 14th, exactly one month later, um, we were told that it was lung cancer Mm. and that it had metastasized and it was everywhere. Mm. So October 14th, it's so crazy because Mm. it was one month increments. It's the craziest thing. October 14th, um, he had had a scan done and it was everywhere. And we knew that it probably wasn't going to be very long. And um, I was living with uh, a girl that I'd gone to high school with that we'd been good friends. And her name is Amy. And she turned out to really be my lifeline, I think, because we were good friends in high school. But she knew when I moved home, I was like, there were so many little things happening all at once. And she said, just stay with me and um, mm-hmm. and we'll figure it out. You'll mm-hmm. be okay. <clears throat> and so... Um, Thanksgiving of that year, I looked at my dad and I thought, it's not going to be much longer. And Mm. I was very close with my dad. Mm. And um, the week before Christmas, we put him in hospice. And um, we had a tradition. So every Christmas Eve, we would spend it with my dad's family, with my grandparents on my dad's side and my cousins on my dad's side. And um, we would open our presents and then we would spend that time together as a family. We would go to church And then we would go home that night, and I would open one present from my parents. My parents got divorced when I was 17, and we continued that tradition of Hmm. um, I would still spend that time with my dad, and then on Christmas Day, I would go with my mom, and we would do something with her family. So the year that my dad passed away, that Christmas Eve, Hmm. um, I went to church with my dad's family, And then the Boy Scouts, um, one of the Boy Scout troops through our church had provided some Christmas gifts for my dad. And so I went back to the hospice house and um, I sat out in the lobby area. It was probably close to midnight at this point, you know, and um, I wrapped the gifts and I took them into my dad's room and um, we unwrapped the presents. I'm sorry, I unwrapped the presents and I talked to him about it as I was doing it. And um, we kind of, we celebrated our last Christmas together. And then that next morning on Christmas Day, I woke up and he passed away. But I got to be there. I got to hold his hand. But I thought, how is, how is Christmas? How is anything ever going to feel the same yeah. again? Yeah. You know, how am I going to find joy mm-hmm. in this day that everybody loves? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was my favorite holiday. And I thought, mm-hmm. how is it ever going to be okay again. And so, um, I don't remember a whole lot about the next couple of weeks. It's all just kind of a blur. Um, but I was offered a position back in Little Rock. I'd been working for a broadcasting company before I moved back. And I thought, you know, there are just so many things that have gone wrong since I moved home Mm -hmm. in like a very short time. And I thought, I'm going to go back to Little Rock. Mm. Things were better there. That's Mm. what I kept thinking Mm. to myself. Things were better there. Everything was normal. Mm. And so I moved back to Little Rock. And I went through um, probably a good six-month period where I was simply going through the motions every day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I wasn't, I had friends and we would go out. Um, they weren't necessarily the best influences, but mm. I also was also, I was in charge of myself too. Yeah, sure. And so, um, I just wasn't making very good choices. And I remember I woke up one morning, it was a Sunday morning, it was a Sunday morning. I woke up and I laid there and I said, okay, God, if this is what you have planned for me, if this is how you see the rest of my life going, mm. okay, this is not what I pictured. This is not what I want. But if this is what I'm supposed to have, okay. And if it's not, I said, I really need some help mm-hmm. because I, I don't know what to do at this point. And it wasn't long after that, I noticed that um, I enrolled at Euler in a master's program because I still wanted to teach, Jared. Mm. I knew that I was mm. called to teach and I still, I just knew that I was supposed to. I didn't know how, but I knew I was supposed to. So I enrolled at Euler in a master's program so that I could get my secondary, my master's in secondary education. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that I made some new friends through that. And as I did, some of the friends that were not the best influences in my life, that our relationship started to dwindle. Mm. And it, that started to be, it, the problem kind of started to weed itself out. And then I met Josh, and I met him through the friends that I'd met at Euler. And um, I knew within I knew within our first couple of dates that he's who I was going to be with, mm. whether he liked it or not. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> he and I yeah. were going to be together. And so um, I look back now at that time, and I always tell him, I'm like, you literally were an answered prayer. Mm. I had reached what I felt was a rock bottom, and you were my answered prayer. Mm-hmm. And I got my um, my master's in secondary education, and I started teaching Spanish at Little Rock Central High School. Wow, what was that like? Oh, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. I taught level one, and so I had kids from all different walks of life, and it was absolutely, it was just a great time. What did you like so much about it? The diversity. Yeah. That's just always been a part of me, the diversity. And so I would have kids from very affluent homes, and then I would have kids that I knew were coming from absolutely nothing, you know, right there in the same classroom. And I got to make a difference to those, to all of the kids Yeah. every day. How do you feel like, you just mentioned that the, um, the death of your father really formed you. How do you feel like that's made you or helped make you into the person that you are today? Like, how do you see that still impacting your story? You know, I grew up fearing change. Like I said, you know, I, I lived at home through college. I went to a college in my hometown and I really, I was scared of change. And then when there was so much happening all at one time and so much change taking place at one time that I had no control over, I had to learn that change can be good, mm-hmm. and I had to embrace it, even when, when I wanted to fight it so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to embrace the change, and so I think that that's how it, how it formed me the most, is that I'm okay now with change. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness, right? Because 2020. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <I> mean, yeah. <laughs> change is so scary. It can be. You know, it's why I don't know that you have probably seen this in in your work as well. It's why, you know, you have someone who's maybe in an abusive relationship and they stay. Sure. Because it's just comfortable. Yes. In a weird way. 
it's like it's be it'd be scarier for me to leave and change than you That's know, to right. stay here in this abusive relationship. And the unknown, the unknown, it can be so scary. Totally. Yeah, definitely. So there was more change to come from you because I guess you're in Little Rock. Yes. You probably had never heard of Paragold at that point. I'm I guessing. had not. No. Or like other than just probably through Josh. Yes. He's from here, right? Yes, that is right. So how did you eventually get here? So we met, Josh and I met, um, I guess it was January, February of 2005. And um, it was maybe our fourth date. I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm enrolled in this program. And I said, I still have to go back to Costa Rica. I said, if I don't do it, I said, I'd planned on going this summer, you know, for a full three months. And I said, if I don't do it, I will always regret it. Hmm. And if I choose not to do it because you and I are dating, eventually I will resent you. And I don't want that because that would not be your fault. Yeah. And so I said, so I'm going to go and I would love for you to come and visit. But I mean, I guess (laughs) that's always your choice. Um, and so I left and I went back to Costa Rica and I did it for three months that time. And, uh, this is the part, this is the part that shaped who I am as the ESL coordinator. Hmm. This, the second time I went to Costa Rica, because I had, I was looking at it through such a different lens this time. I knew that I had a career in mind and I knew what I wanted to do and I had goals and I would do whatever it took to reach those goals. Hmm. And so I... I chose to study this time at a smaller, in a smaller city, just a little Puebla, and it was called Santana, and it's outside of San Jose, and it was much smaller. I lived with the same family, the same Colombian family. I'd kept in touch with them, and we were still friends, and so I lived with them again, and I studied at this little school up in the mountains, and I loved it. Um, There were a lot of times where I was the only student in a class, and so it was just me and the teacher. And then because it was in the mountains, I had to ride with the teachers in the teacher van to get to my bus stop. And so I got a little bit of extra, um, maybe a little extra tutoring each day because then I would, you know, ride and listen to the the teachers all talk about their students. And I thought, Lord, my teacher's probably like, (laughs) I can't wait until we get her bus stop so I can talk about her, you know. (laughs) And so I just had this extra time. And, um, at night I knew I was getting the language, Jared, when I would dream in Spanish at night, Mm -hmm. the first time it happened, it kind of weirded me out because I I woke up and I thought, I really have no idea what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then I could also, the other way I knew that I was really getting it, I could eavesdrop on people on a public bus Mm -hmm. and I would know what they were saying, even if I didn't know the context and so I thought, okay, I am really it. mastering yeah. this language. That's awesome. It was great. So you're growing fluent in Spanish at that point. Yes. And so from there, how did? what was the next stop? Was it from there back to Little Rock and to Paragold? Or? Yes. Yes. So from there, um, I came back to Little Rock, and uh, Josh and I got engaged that same year. Okay. And... Um, we we knew that we wanted to have a family, and we knew that we wanted to do it here. And so um, I didn't have any experience with Paragold, except every time that we would come and visit, I loved his family. Hmm. Um, the friends that I was introduced to, they were all great, and I thought, why wouldn't I want to move there? Hmm. And so we moved here this summer of 2008, and uh, 
my first memory of being in Paragold was I found out I was pregnant with our first child. Oh, really? Wow. Yes, it's I a know. big day. It is. It was. And what's funny is we had, uh, Josh and I had moved all of our own stuff up here. And um, I found out I was pregnant and we were scheduled on a Friday and we were scheduled to leave that Friday night to go back to Little Rock and move the last of our stuff over the weekend. Well, because I found out I was pregnant, I thought, well, I don't need to be lifting anything heavy. (laughs) (laughs) So I chose to do nothing, you know, that weekend. And Josh goes, just last week you were helping. And I said, (laughs) I know, it's really unfortunate, isn't it? But it's because of the baby I can't help. (laughs) You're watching out for your boy. (laughs) That's right. Yes. That's very selfless of you. So, but um, I met, uh, Dr. Hossman was the superintendent at the time. I met him on a Friday night in the parking lot, and he said, we are starting theme schools. And one of the themes was uh, included foreign language. And he said, I want Spanish to be taught K-4. And that was like my dream job. I mean, I'd been with high school students, but I thought, oh, I bet I would love the the elementary. And so he hired me that night. He, you know, he offered me the position, and I accepted that night. And Josh and I moved up here, and um, so at that time, I was teaching Spanish K-4, and Where then I, I also at Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, okay. Yes. And then um, I also was teaching two class periods at the high school still. So I was a little bit, you know, here and there. Yeah. So when did you become ESL director? That, this is my eighth year doing that. So I taught K-4 and then high school. And then there was one year that I went out to the middle school, and I taught fifth and sixth grade Spanish. And oh my gosh. Jared, I thought I was going to like the K-4. When I was fifth and sixth grade Spanish, those were my favorite ages. Really? Yes. What did you like about that age? Well, they can tie their own shoes. Yeah, that's nice. It is. It is. And they're still kind of scared of their mamas. <laughs> so you can, you know, you could threaten call to call bluff. home. Yeah. Yes, 100%. And they were so fun to do projects with. That's cool. It was really neat. Yes. So I loved that year. And then... um, Mrs. Smith was our superintendent, mm-hmm. and she called me that spring, and she said, Danielle, she said, I need an ESL coordinator. And I thought, okay. I said, well, who are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> she said, I would really like you to take it. And I said, okay. I said, can I think about it? And she said, absolutely. And I thought about it for a few hours. I called Josh, you know, right after she called me. And I said, I don't know how to explain it, but I said, I think this is my next step. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm loving the middle school, Mm -hmm. I think that this is my next step. And I called her back that, I was able to call her back that same day. And I said, yes, I'm in, Mm -hmm. I'm in. And there's nowhere and nothing that I would rather do. That's awesome. What do you, uh, well, tell me this for those who, I mean, I, I know what you do, but maybe not everyone listening fully understands it. What exactly does the ESL director do? And then I want to get back to why you love it so much. Okay. So tell us sure. first, yeah, what is what exactly does ESL director? Sure. So ESL stands for English as a Second Language. And so I oversee any student in the district, kindergarten through 12th grade, that has a language other than English spoken at the home, in the home. And it's not even necessarily, it's not maybe that the child speaks it, but the parents do. And so the child is hearing, you know, this, you know, English is their second language. And so um, when I took the position, I looked it up last night because I wanted to make sure I was right. So the first year that I took it, we had um, 100 language minority students. Those are students that have a language in the home other than English, 
out of that 100, we served um, 53 of them. So that means 53 scored low enough in their language ability that they required some sort of extra help Mm -hmm. at school. And so um, the first year I used just to kind of get my feet wet, there's a lot of um, state guidelines, a lot of federal guidelines, and I had to make sure that, um, that I was on top of everything and that we were staying, you know, in regulation with what we were supposed to be doing. The second year that I was there, we started to see a large African uh, refugee population yeah. move in. And it got to a point where there were days that, Jared, I would enroll six to nine kids a day. What was the, uh, why were we getting so many refugees at that point, you know? Uh, Memphis is a resettlement city. And so the best way that it's been explained to me is when families are in refugee camps, there's, there might be like a big board up on a wall. And each day the family goes and they look at the board and they see if their family has been assigned to a country, to a resettlement country, a resettlement city. Uh, Sometimes they get a say in it. If they, you know, if they have family in a particular area, they might be resettled in that area. But if not, then it's just kind of up to whoever will take them. And so um, Memphis is a resettlement city. And so when you're a a refugee and you're in a resettlement city, you can move around within a 90-mile radius. It's either 90 or 120-mile radius. And um, Paragold is within that radius of Memphis. And so when I would ask my students, you know, why did your parents choose Paragold? They said, well, they, they felt safer here. They know that it's a safe community, and they didn't think that Memphis was a safe area for them. Mm-hmm. And so they also talked a lot about the schooling because their parents wanted them to have great schooling. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we ended up with a lot of refugees. People don't realize, I say people, some people don't realize that you know refugees, when they come in, like, I, I know that a lot of our refugees were Muslim. Right. Correct. And so, and I know just growing up in Paragool that if you watch certain news channels, like you're going to have fears around Muslims from other countries. Right. And so those are oftentimes the news considered to be the bad guys or whatever else. And it's like, and you know, we've done work with, with Muslim refugees in our city. Mm -hmm. And what we found out is like, look, they want safety and security just as much as you do. Like the reason they've been forced out of their country is because of war. You know, it's because of crime. It's because of corrupt government. It's like they're trying to just find a safe place where they can raise their family in a good school district, just like you said. Exactly. Would they're just agree? like us. You wouldn't do any different for your family. I wouldn't do any different for my family. Absolutely. How do you think, let me ask you this first, how many um, how many different countries have we seen settle here for a period of time? Um, I know we have 17 different languages right now spoken okay. in the Paragould School District, and we have about 23 countries represented. Wow. I know, it's unreal. countries. It's unreal, isn't it? It is unreal because I grew up, I mean, I'm born and raised here in Paragould, and I'm telling you, like, my ninth through, I'm, this is, not, I don't think it's an exaggeration, I mean, I think my ninth through 12th grade, or not the 12th grade classes were, if not, like, all white, like, Ninety nine point nine 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 percent, right? And so, like, I, I, I'm like you. I love the diversity. 
Like I'm super yes. thankful for that we're growing in diversity, but 23 countries, like, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yes. So how did that, how did that happen? Cause not all of those are refugees. No, no. They so are. how are other, how are other countries settling? So we have, um, like we have students from Mexico. We have, um, students from Central America. Some of my, some of my Central American students are refugees. Okay. Um, but we have, you know, there's Mexico, there's Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Spain. We have students from um, Brazil, Germany. Um, and the these aren't just these aren't exchange students. No, no, these are their parents have moved here for one reason or another, um, and or I'll talk about that. So the that was my second year. Second year were African refugees. I had a large influx of African refugees. My third year is when we started seeing Marshallese. Mm -hmm. And I was thankful. So there's a, it's called the ESL Institute. And I had to go to that. It was a two-week course. And it was 12 graduate hours, basically. And it taught me how to be an ESL coordinator. That's the gist of it, is how to, how to teach ESL and how to be an ESL coordinator. And thank goodness I went to that because a Marshallese American had come and he had spoken. And I thought, I have no idea where the Marshallese Islands are. I mean, I could have looked at a map for 30 minutes and I wouldn't have been able to find it. I had no idea. Yes. And so then when I enrolled my very first Marshallese American, I was like, oh, yes. I mean, I didn't feel, I I knew where they were from and they were shocked. And so um, how that happened was Anchor opened a new section of their plant and they hired a Marshallese American and she did some recruiting for them. And so Marshallese are very family oriented. They're very much like the Hispanic culture. Yeah, very warm culture, right? Oh, very much. Yeah. Absolutely. And so she recruited, of course, you know, her family and friends and they came and they started working at Anchor and that's how um, the Marshallese started moving here to Paris. It just starts with like one family. It does. Yes. Like, this is a great place. That's right. Come join us. Yes. The Marshallese, you know the story behind the Marshallese, uh, Bill, if you ever heard? Mm-mm. So we we have a, like an agreement worked out with them, right? We do, yes. Well, what's the story behind that? So the United States, because of where the Marshall Islands are, um, the United States, they were testing, they were testing nuclear weapons. And so we dropped, I don't remember now, Jared, how many it was. Um, it was back in the 60s. We dropped 50, 60 atomic bombs on in and around the Marshall Islands, testing them. Uh, the biggest one was on the island of the Bikini Atoll. And so now they have a Bikini Day is what they call it. And so they did. They had to explain it to me because it's <laughs> definitely not what I thought it was going to be when they first started, when they first mentioned it. Um, but that was where the, the largest one was dropped. And so um, kind of as, um, I guess, a way to make peace with them, they're allowed to travel to the United States on a Marshallese passport. They're allowed to work here, uh, learn different trades. They can take those trades back to, you know, the Marshall Islands to kind of help rebuild the Marshall Islands as well. Um, and so, yes, that's that's how it happened. Yeah, it's a crazy story. I remember you telling me that whenever I went into a couple homes, I think, with you to visit some Marshallese. Yes. And I was just like, what, well, is this the real deal? <laughs> this is real yeah. life. Like, yep, it's true. <laughs> so what is um, 23 different? you know, countries represented here in our city. I know you've worked with so many from different places all over the world. What is something that you have personally learned from working with the international population here in Paragould? And maybe even 
kind of with that, like what's something you would like other people to know about these families? Sure. Um, I remember this kind of comes back to the second time that I was in Costa Rica. I was traveling home on a city bus and I started speaking with a woman that I was sitting next to and we get to her home and she says, will you please come inside and have dinner with my family? And I said, I'm sorry, I can't tonight. And she said, well, how about tomorrow night? Mm. I said, absolutely. You know, so here was this stranger and she was offering to open her home to me. She wanted me to meet her family. She wanted to feed me. And um, she just wanted to know more about me. She wanted to know more about my story. And so I went, and it was one of the most pleasant nights. And I just remember how that made me feel. And I thought, if there's a way for me to make people feel the way that I did, Mm -hmm. then that's what I want to be able to provide. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I go into every day is if this was my child or if this was me, what would I want? How would I want to be treated? And that's what I try and do. And um, I think my greatest takeaway is we're all human. We're all people. We talked about it a few minutes ago. These are families. These are people with their children. I talk about, you know, having kids, it's wearing a part of your heart on the outside of your body. And every day I send my boys to school and I'm sending the world the best that I have. Mm -hmm. And sometimes my boys don't make the best choices. (laughs) I mean, they've got Josh for a dad. They can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's what they're doing too. Every day they send their kids to us, they're sending us a piece of their heart. And they're sending Mm -hmm. us the best that they have. Mm -hmm. And they're wanting us to educate them. And that's what I want us to do. I just want people to to be open and to know that that they're doing the best that they can too. One of the, when I did teach Spanish, I had two Mm -hmm. rules for my students. I said, and I know I've talked a lot with my hands, so I'm probably hitting all of no, your it's equipment. okay. The people at home can't see how much <laughs> you're waving them, so <laughs> go ahead. So I had two rules for my students. We would, um, we talked about a lot of different cultures and a lot of different traditions and things like that. And I said, you can 100% think that something is gross, disgusting. You would never try it. You would never do it. But I said, you don't get to say that in this classroom. Mm. I said, you can tell me that something is neat or you can tell me that it is different and I'll know exactly what you mean. Mm. I'll know that you think, oh, that is gross or yuck, but you can't say that. Mm. You just, you don't get to because you don't want, you don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings, Mm. you know? So Danielle, I know that uh, you've been around a lot of different people from a lot of different parts of the world. I'm just interested even as you think about the different families from different countries living in Paragould, what's something that you have personally learned? Um, what's something that you've taken away? Something that I've taken away is they, they want to build relationships with us. Mm-hmm. They don't want to feel like outsiders. They want to build relations. They want to be a part of the community mm-hmm. while not losing their own culture and their own heritage. Yeah. And I think that's okay because I don't want to lose mine either. And when I lived in Costa Rica, I I still celebrated, you know, events that were happening here in the United States, even though I wasn't here, I still celebrated those things. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that that's one thing that, that they want to be so bad a part of our community, but also without losing themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm really glad you said that because I'm just thinking back to your experience in Costa Rica, how whenever you said that you weren't able, you weren't fluent in Spanish, it was harder for you to convey emotions and feelings. And so I think because that's true, then you could come across cold or calculated or standoffish or whatever, right? Absolutely. Because if you're like emotionless, it's like, think about like almost like robotic, like this, yes. which therefore is like, I can't do a relationship with a robot. Like, so you're just kind of like, okay, forget it. But that is true. That's what we have experienced as well is, and we've worked mainly with Ethiopians, but man, they are so hospitable. It's like when we go into their home, like they're going to give us something. Oh, guaranteed. Like even like, you know, if they don't have much or whatever, it's like they're going to make us tea or they're going to like, they've, they've taught us how to like roast coffee beans and they'll like make us coffee. Isn't that or, the best? It is the best. And it's like, you know, I'm so used to as an American, I'm just, I'm overly busy. We talked about this even before we started recording, just how busy life is, you know? And it's like when I walk into someone's home, I feel like I need to like apologize almost sometimes. I'm just like, hey, like, I'm sorry I'm here. Like, I'll be fast or right. whatever. But like, they actually want you to stay. 100%. You know? They want you to be there. And it's just, they're highly, highly relational. And I, so. I have figured out, like when I, I do a lot of home visits, I definitely haven't done near as many this year, you know, because of sure. COVID. But... um I have figured out that there are several homes that I need to make sure I'm going to have time to spend with them because they want that relationship. And that's when I find that I get a lot done. I get a lot done with those families that I have that relationship with. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I know that if I'm going to Mimby's house, I'm going to end up having mm -hmm. coffee with Mimby mm -hmm. and she's going to roast the beans right there in front of me. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not even just a home visit anymore. It's an experience. Absolutely. And it's so great. It is. And it's me and my, my wife and I, I guess I should say, because if my wife's listening to this, she's a former English teacher. Um, <laughs> she, we've talked about this, how much of a blessing it is that our kids get to grow up with people from different countries and uh, around our table eating dinner with us. Like, cause I didn't get to experience that. And it's so cool to be able to expose, um, and we've talked about this before too, to like the different foods. Yes. And like teaching your kids to appreciate those. Absolutely. You know? And so yeah, I've heard you talk about even with your own students, right? About the importance of the value of like, hey, like don't, like you can say, I can't remember how you said it, but like you can say it's different or yes. neat, but you're not going to be like, this is gross or whatever. That's right. They can either tell me something is neat or they can tell me it's different. And yeah. I know that they mean, oh, yuck, I would <laughs> never try that. Yeah. Or that is disgusting. But they don't get to do that. Yeah. They get to use neat or different. And I know, I know exactly what they're talking about, yeah. but we're not going to hurt anyone else's Absolutely. feelings. You're teaching people to try to appreciate the different cultures and show respect. Like as someone who's made in the image of God, like, you know, they may be different, like they're still human. Like you said, one more question I'd like to ask before I let you go. I don't know you got to get back to your uh, schedule, but what's something that you would like for others to know about the different families that have moved here from different parts of the world? Because um, we all tend to be a little bit without maybe meaning to be judgmental, right? You can't help it. Like you just have stereotypes and you kind of sure. have your own worldview and biasness and all that. So as someone who's worked on the ground level with these different families, what's something you want other people in Paragold to know about them? I think the most important thing is a little bit of trying goes a long way. Just a little bit of, even if you have to be vulnerable in front of them, 
don't be afraid to try to have a relationship. You know, oftentimes I think that um, people say, well, we don't speak the same language. A lot can happen between two people mm. when there is nothing even being said. Right. Absolutely. You know, you don't have to have words to be able to express how you feel about someone or to do something nice for someone else. Um, because love can be felt. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to come in through your ears. It's not something that you have to hear, but you can feel love. And I think that that's probably what I would, that's my biggest takeaway. And something I've always tried to teach my kids and my students, the world doesn't look like Paragold. There's a great big world out there, and I don't want my kids to, I don't know, I just want my kids to have a worldly view, and I want them to know that things are done differently other places, and just because it's different, it's not bad. There's so much good and so many neat things that are out there. Oh, I said neat. Surely that's not what I meant, yeah, right? Yeah, but you did. There are so many great things out there <laughs> that I want my kids to be able to to see and to do. And I don't want them to be, I don't want them to let their fear. That's not a good answer. It's a really good answer. I actually am sitting there, yeah, I'm listening to you. And I honestly, I'm like, Yes, and amen, because <laughs> so much, honestly, of there's just a lot of hatred out there right now, and there's a lot of demonizing people who are different than you, yes. whether it's different politically or different, like, socially or whatever, right? Yes. Geographically, uh, ethnically, like, so I'm listening to you answer that, and I'm like, man, like, that's how we change the world is through... You know, talk about helping your kids see that hey, not the whole world looks like Paragold. Paragold's great, right? But oh, not, it's not, not the world doesn't look like Paragold, and that's okay. Like, there's a lot of people out there who are different than you, and you can learn to appreciate their differences. And I think it's so sad to me that a lot of times we don't get to appreciate those things because of our fears. Absolutely, like our fears get in the way of. Making, you know, for you, you literally like got up and went to Costa Rica. And mm -hmm. it's like, if you, I just listened to your story. I'm like, if you would have let your fears make that decision for you, like, where would you even be now? I'd probably like, your still whole be living life. in my mama's basement. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. And I'm just thinking like, maybe it's not always that drastic with people, but it's not that much different. I mean, we miss out on so much whenever we let our fears kind of like drive every decision that we make. And so... What I just hear you saying, and the reason I think it's actually a great answer is like living with an open mind and actually get to know somebody for yourself before like you pass judgment and then learning to appreciate the differences. Like, and I think, yeah, there's going to be areas where we disagree and there's going to be areas where maybe like we don't line up totally, but man, like rather than focusing so heavily on that, like there's all of this stuff over here that we have in common and it's just really cool. That's I think perfect. when we come together and rally around that. Yes, that is you just said everything that was on my heart, 100%. Yeah. You know, Paragold, I will say this for Paragold, it has taught me to be a better friend. And I say that because, you know, I was sick a few weeks ago. Within a couple of hours of 
some of my friends knowing that I was sick. I had a bag of medicine labeled in baggies with how much I was supposed to Mm. take, how often. There were Powerades in there. There were some treats in there. Um, Jill Gill brought us homemade bread. Within hours of me saying that I was sick, who does that? I mean, that's what Paragold, Paragold is full of people like that. Mm. It is the, it really is the friendliest city. Mm. It really is. And it's taught me how to be a better friend and I'm nowhere near where I need to be. But that's why everyone I think can feel included is because Paragold is so friendly and I just, I just don't want fear to let people, to make people not be themselves and to not try. Yeah. And I'm just thinking as you share that, Danielle, like part of the reason you've experienced Paragold in that way is because you are taking the posture that you're talking about of like not letting fear drive and, and keep you from opening up to the people and even being vulnerable. And so like, I'm just thinking, even if someone's listening to this right now and they're like, I don't know if I've experienced Paragold in that way. I think it really does go back to being open, being vulnerable, being able to appreciate differences, focusing more on what we have in common than what we don't have in common. And it's like, man, like you live your life that way. Like there's a good chance eventually you're going to develop the kind of friendships when you're sick, like you're going to have like those kind of friends coming around too. Yes. So it's always, um, it's always really good for my soul to spend time with you. So um, we're very blessed. I know I've told you that before, but we haven't talked in a while. I just want to say it again, we're so blessed to have you in this city, have you in the school district. Thank and so, you so much. Yeah, so glad you're here. Thank you for making time to come and talk about something I know is very near and dear to your heart. And I look forward to yeah, having you again on the show in the near future. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. So that was Danielle Honeycutt. Um, and I love Danielle. Every time I'm around her, um, I'm so encouraged. Like I just... I feel like I laugh more and I smile more. I mean, she just kind of brings that out of people. And um, once again, as I'm listening to her talk, I'm just amazed by the incredible people that we have living here in our city. Um, So, Danielle, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for all that you do. If you're still listening, I want to encourage you to go to iTunes and give us a like. Um, That helps people to find us uh, more quickly and learn more about the great people living here in the city. Always uh, check us out on our uh, social media accounts, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. There's good information there. You can also go to our website, paragolpodcast.com. And if you've not subscribed to our email list, we encourage you to do that. Thanks again for listening and until next time.